Good morning, everyone. God is good, and he's worthy. Aren't you glad? I'm glad. This morning, we are going to um, look at the scripture from Haggai, chapter 1. Okay. If you're willing and able, if you will please stand with me to read the scripture from Haggai chapter 1, verse 4. Okay? Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruin? You may be seated. So the title of my sermon today is The House That God Builds Will Last Forever. So let's take a survey. How many of you conduct spring cleaning every year? Oh, or fall cleaning, or remodeling your house, or updating your furnishing, or your appliances, or your window treatments. So how much pleasure do you get out of spending money to update your house? Now that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> Does it feel like a money pit at times, or are you at peace with the changes? So when I first thought about my sermon for today, God took me to Isaiah 43, for which the children read, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? But then he led me to Haggai. And so my question to God was, well, what was the connection? And boy, did our sovereign father reveal his character, his heart for his people, and his purpose for and to me. So to provide context, Haggai was the first prophet sent to the Jews after the return, after their return from captivity. He was sent to encourage the people to build the temple. The people were assured that the latter would be better than the first. And that's very, very important as I unfold the story. Okay. So why much, so why much, so much attention to the temple? Um, because the neglect was due to, to the opposition and discouragement recording in Ezra 4. So I'm, I'm, you don't have to look up that, that book, but I'm just going to give you a little context. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and put it into writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the nations of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build a house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God. Then rose up the chiefs of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and with all them whose spirit God had raised up to build the house of the Lord. The exiles began to return. I mean, there were many. There was the children of Ara, 775. Oh, Lord. The children of Gabar, the children of Mishmas, the priests and the children of Jedidiah and the house of Jeshua, the Levites, the children of Jeshua and um, Cadmiel and the children of Hadavia, 74, the singers, the porters, and the children of the porters, the sons of Ramah and Giba, the priests and the sons returning to build the temple. 
But then some priests were removed because their names were not on the registry. God, I, I, I have to be on that roll. <laughs> I don't want to be turned away. Because those that were removed were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. So there were many that were prepared to go to build this temple, males and female servants, singing males and female singers, horses, camels, donkeys. Some heads of the father's household arrived at, the God, at God's house, offered willingly for the house of God to restore on its foundation. But the first thing they did was to build an, an altar. Sacrifices, they made sacrifices unto God, and then they built the foundation. And so what was so significant about it was because this was an offering unto God, their sovereign father. And so because they purged and they gave the offerings unto God, their focus was there. It is not to just, hmm, I'll build a house today, but maybe tomorrow I won't feel like it. No, it was the totalitarian, it was the totalitarian of their spirit. That's not the right word. <laughs> it was the absolute and total surrender of their spirit to God to build this temple. But as you know, Satan rears his ugly head by chapter four in Ezra. And so the men from uh, the adversaries came to Zerubbabel, now governor to the heads of the father's house, and they made this proposal. They said, let us build for you, for we seek and worship your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Azahadan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, isn't that interesting how people like to snuggle up when they think that you're doing something good? That they say they're there to worship God. They speak the right words. They dress for the occasion. They smell good. They're very transformative in their articulation of what they say they're going to do. But because of the men that God raised up, they knew that these men worshiped Babylon. They were from Babylon. They were sent from Babylon. And although they learned to worship God, they were worshiping other gods too. So double-minded spirit, which are you going to choose? But the men that were raised up to build this temple were knowledgeable enough to know that, no, no, we have this. We can do this by ourselves. They did not want the purpose tainted. They didn't want their sovereign God diminished. But then the adversaries, as they always do, they began to uh, seek counsels and hire counselors to really diminish the word of God and disrupt people. You know, speaking into their weaknesses. And they were discouraged. They were absolutely discouraged. And so let me take you back to Haggai. When God is, again, making that declaration to build his temple. And this is the second time around, because you know what the people were doing? The temple was in ruins 
But they were so busy with their own lives, it would begin to, you know, it, it's okay. It, it, it's okay if I worship today, but I step outside of the temple and, I don't know, go and do some other things I like to do on Sunday that might impede my ability to worship God to the fullest. And Satan is making it easier and easier and easier. I'm telling you, since Zoom, I mean, since COVID, it becomes very easy. I'm going to sit at home and I'm just going to watch. Let's forget about the fellowship of the saints. I'm just going to watch. And if I don't like you, I'm going to just click on to another channel. I don't like what the pastor said. I'm just going to click on to another channel. And what Satan is doing is confusing those that God called. He says, you are mine. So if his people are doing that, can you imagine us who are called Christians, how we are modeling to the outside world? But it happens. It, it, it happens. So when God made that declaration, again, the motivation was different. The attitudes were different. Was it because they were discouraged before and they did not want to be uh, threatened or bullied? or even challenged because of the, weakest, the, the weakness of their faith. They just did not want to go through it. So how does one go from being very resourceful, thankful, and grateful to God to thinking in the deficit? I don't have enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm too busy. I'm not good enough. I can put off God's plans now for a, a, a more convenient date. Have you heard that before? <laughs> Have you teased that before in your mind? Does it surface in any capacity? If I'm true to myself, yes. I'm speaking for me, nobody else. So have you ever noticed in the Bible how God does these if-then statements? The conditional statements, if then, there are benefits. <laughs> I love that. You hear the benefits at the end um, when in um, Psalm 1, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And you hear, what are the benefits? For he shall be like a tree planted by the river of living waters. You hear that if-then statement, if we do what the Bible says, if we are obedient, if we, obedient, if we are compliant, not complacent like Evan says it. It's compliant. No. <laughs> So in the book of Haggai, after being disrupted and discouraged, the people kept putting off rebuilding the temple. Now here comes the consequences. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai and said, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? We got our football, basketball, baseball, YouTube, messaging, doing the search. We got it all. I mean, technology can be very beneficial, but at the same time, it could be a great distractor. And God says, when he says this, he says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. He's articulating that. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink, but never have, you never, you are never filled. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in your purse with holes in it. In other words, as John Maxwell says, do you see 
how your actions contradicts your faith. How you work hard but see few results. You spent, spent much but receive little. So yes, God does caution us to give careful thought to our ways. And then he says to go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I can take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. He is establishing himself, I am. <laughs> Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains in ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. You feel dissatisfied in your own production. So therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So then Zerubbabel, son of Shadil, Joshua, son of Josedak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord of the people. I am with you. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the mighty spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day in the sixth month. Church, I ask, why are we so hard-headed, hard-hearted? God lays out his plan. We think we have a better plan. Why are we so easily discouraged? Why do we allow our past to dictate our future and eclipse all that God has in store for us. How are we so empowered that we think we have the ability to know all the mysteries of God and has predetermined our fate? And I've been thinking about this a lot and juxtaposing it with God doing a new thing in my life. And I've really been interested in triggers and behavior and Nancy and, and Reverend Steve, I don't know if you remember in 2018 when you invited Rev and I to this church to hear this pastor. And um, one of the panelists talked about post-traumatic slave syndrome. Do you remember that? When I heard that, because they were actually justifying behaviors, I was like, oh, what? What are you talking about? Then I began to really think and explore, what is that like? What? It's the way we act caused by multi-generational trauma. And because of epigenetics, does it alter our DNA? Do we hear things differently, see things differently? And if we do, what are we to do with those things? How are we to respond based on God's word? So I researched it from a humanistic viewpoint because I wanted to get the theoretical framing, but I wanted to know God's response. 
Because in our household, we live by the, the Joseph principle, Satan meant it for bad, but God meant it for good, so that others may live. So if I'm all caught up in my trauma, how can I hear God or see God? And how can I, how can I do the things God will have me to do? He cautions us to think about our ways, our return on our investments. What has it profited us again? I've invested much, but profited little. I eat a lot, but hunger continues to linger. I love my Diet Coke, but I'm not satisfied. That's just a little siphon. I put on my clothes, <laughs> but I am not warm. I make money, but it burns in my pocket. Well, in chapter 2 of Haggai, the people continued with their weakened ways. And the Lord asked Haggai to speak to Zerubbabel and to Joshua the high priest and to the remnant of the people. And he asked again, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Now, that's a critical question. Because if we are promised that the latter will be better than the former, what does that look like in God's mind? Not my mind. I'm limited. But in God's mind. Leaders have a big vision. They articulate vision to the people they are leading. And they work hard. But let me just share with you the difference in the temple they were building under Haggai's governance and uh, Solomon's temple. Just a little context here. Zerubbabel's temple was built on a smaller scale. They had less resources. Solomon's temple housed the Ark of the Covenant, which is no longer in Israel's possession. At the first temple's dedication, the altar had been lit by fire from heaven, and the temple had been filled with the Shekinah. Attendees at the second temple's dedication witnessed no such miracles. Even so, Haggai prophesied that the second temple would one day have a magnificence to have the magnificence to outshine the glory of the first. And his word was fulfilled. Now, when we hear that, we want we work in the immediacy. But his word was fulfilled 500 years later. When Jesus the Christ walked on the scene, Zerubbabel's temple was not as outwardly impressive as Solomon's, but it had the greater glory. The Messiah himself walked the courts of the temple that Zerubbabel built. Isn't God good? Isn't he good? The former is less than the latter. Now let's look, let's just think about it from a human perspective, juxtaposed to two. The people complained and it is not very far from how we complain. The job is too big. But God's response is, the job is mine. Let's work together. We say, the resources are too small. And God, but God says, I am your source. I own, I own all the resources. We say, what we build will not be as great as the past. But what God says is what you build, I will fill with my glory, and that should be good enough. So what am I profiting, profiting without the blessing of God? Absolutely 
nothing. God wants our hearts and our souls and our minds. He wants us to trust in him. He wants us to lean on him. He wants us to abide in him. Now, here's the real significance of why he took me to Haggai and to Isaiah 43. Um, I come from a big family. And in my family, sometimes the children take care of the children when the parents are out at work. Every summer, we had a cousin that would come down from the north. And this cousin had certain conditions as to how she would accept people. Uh, there was a five-year difference between sister, she's the sixth child, I'm the seventh, yes, and then 60 months, okay. Well, they fit her criteria with hair, skin color, everything. I did not. I had my daddy's hair, I had different hair, different skin color, I had my grandmother's skin color. <laughs> I had all that different, but she was a bit wicked. She was a bit wicked, and one summer she decided to just beat me unmercifully. And then she put me in the closet, and I was there for hours, for what seemed like hours. And my sisters were really afraid to really address that, and the little people are coming in now, so I'll be like, but I still remember that trauma. And I still remember laying there silent, talking to God. I still remember God being there in that little closet with me. And so because of that experience, and we talk about multi-generational trauma, but because of that experience, he gave me a heart for children, to love on them, to discern what's going on with them, and to be with them. God did that. So it's not my past that I'm focused on, but where God is taking us in the future, the latter is better than the former. Because I have the ability to touch and to reach and to address those things that are happening with the kids today. And I'm, I'm very thankful, and I'm surprised I can talk about this without crying, because that was a very deep and dark secret that I, I never shared. But I can see where God used it and continues to use it. Because today we live in a culture that if you don't say the right thing, you're canceled. And I'm, I, I love this. Don't be a Karen. I just love this. I can go to Chick-fil-A in the drive through line. He said, what's your name? I said, Karen. I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a celebrity now. And I said, that's Miss Karen to you. And he's like, I see her. I know. So, so when people say, don't be a Karen, I said, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> I love it, but that's how the culture dictates your behavior and who you are and what they expect you to be. And it's so, they are so fleeting in their thinking that they're not thinking about the past or even what God could create to develop something better. So because of that experience that could have debilitated me, God had another plan. He had an absolute another plan. Oh, he is so good. He is so good. So parents, I ask you, is God reflected in your conversations? Do you teach your children about the goodness of God? Do you allow God to choose your spiritual friends? God is indeed doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? 
I remember months ago, Zaya came to me. She said, First Lady, she says, I, I need to talk to you. She says, I think I'm the oldest in the church, and it's time for me to do a solo. And I loved it. I loved that she stepped up like that because her grandmother's right. She does lead. And all those children have the capacity to lead and to be great leaders, but we have a responsibility to help them there, to culture, to cultivate and nurture them. And even when things don't seem like it should be the way we want to. And I'm a boomer, so, you know, we're like, don't ask me to open my hands for anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but just to love on them and experience the joys, and when they're having issues, listen intently to them. Even when they're acting out, love on them, be close to them, because there's something else that is in them that is greater than anything you see on the surface. And I ask that we would all pray for them. So Isaiah 43 says, but now, this is what the Lord says. He has created you, Jacob. He has formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. Hear this. Oof, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And then I'm going to scoot down to verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness. In streams in the wasteland, the wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to drink, to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Lord, teach my heart to grieve like your heart. Teach my mind to think and act on your ways. Teach my feet to walk in your path. Teach my hands to labor for your children. Teach the very depth of my soul to know your word. Teach my tongue to edify your people. Teach me how to love immeasurably more. Amen. <laughs>